Uh, howdy folks, Ryan here. Um, just wanted to remind everyone before we get started that um, you can uh, contact us at leftanchorpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at leftanchor, facebook.com slash leftanchor. Yeah, big thanks to everyone who subscribed on or uh, reviewed us on iTunes or uh, other podcasting platforms. So uh, yeah, let's start the show. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And today we have a special guest, um, Emma Steiner, who is a graduate student at Georgetown University, a brilliant foreign policy thinker, and also my fiance. Woohoo! Welcome to Emma. Welcome, Emma. So glad to have you Hi. on. You forgot she's great with the, the keyboard. She she turns the phrase really well as well. <laughs> that's also true. I mean, you know, we can't. That's, that's why we're getting married. We can't be that here listing ma- her, mainly it. her praises all, uh, you know, all her praises because it would take. We wouldn't be able that's to do true. anything else, and it'd be just yeah. an hour long <laughs> podcast. It's two part, two part episode just for that. Yeah, that's very kind. Um, so, what are we talking about today, people? Well, I thought we would start with, um, you know, just a bit of foreign policy discussion because uh, maybe we could start with Bernie Sanders had a foreign policy address when he's been basically repeating a lot of the themes that he's been sounding over the past couple of years. Um, I think mainly under the influence of Matt Duss, who I think is a pretty solid thinker on these type of things and basically saying like, you know, the last 20 years of American foreign policy has been terrible, a disaster, um, has not achieved anything either in terms of our, you know, strategic interests, however you want to define that, or in terms of, uh, you know, humanitarian outcomes. And, um, you know, you look at Saudi Arabia and this alliance we have, and it just doesn't make much sense at all, you know, or just like causing all these horrible disasters for no particular rhyme or reason to it. Um, and, um, yeah, maybe we could start, you know, Emma, what do you, what do you think of this, uh, this, this movement here with, with Bernie? I think it's a really good step because a couple of years ago, Bernie seemed kind of ill, ill suited to discuss foreign policy. Uh, he was sort of uncertain of how to talk about things that were off the sort of well-beaten track of, you know, his domestic policy agenda. But I really do think that, again, with the, like, like Ryan said, with the help of Matt Duss and some other foreign policy folks, he's really sort of consolidated an idea of a sort of uh, internationalism in which America is just one of many partners. And he definitely seems a lot more sure of his foreign policy agenda than he did previously. Uh, I, I remember during the primaries and during his campaign, he was sort of just sort of wrong-footed. Um, and that's a real issue that we have sort of tried to help rectify with fellow travelers. That's the left foreign policy blog that I'm an editor of. Just going to plug that right now. Thank you. Plug it. Do it. Plug it. At yes. F Travelers blog on Twitter, fellowtravelersblog.com. It's a WordPress. Um, so 
something that we're doing at Fellow Travelers is trying to fill this gap because we find, and I mean, you see this anytime there's a big defense bill or some sort of action being taken, we find that there's a very unique bipartisan consensus to anything that has to do with uh, the military, defense, any sort of foreign policy action. And it's because the Democrats simply just do not have better ideas and anyone telling them that they can do anything outside of the status quo of violent, bloody interventions. And so Fellow Travelers was sort of created to create a sort of left foreign policy space, but also one that politicians can use as a sort of toolbox of Posing alternative solutions and ideas for these problems instead of just hitting the yes vote for anything that has to do with war. And I think Bernie, with this new internationalism uh, axis, no, it's the authoritarian axis and he's proposing new internationalism to counter it. I think that's a really good tack to take because it provides an alternative to this, you know, bipartisan blob consensus of war, war, war. We want war no more. That's what I say. <laughs> no, that's that's really um, a wonderful project that's much needed, I think. And um, and you know, it's interesting because with Bernie in the past being um, kind of critiqued from the left, not just for being um, maybe wrong-footed or a little less than deft in his rhetoric but uh, perhaps even for not supporting BDS or his actual policy views not being true lefty views. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us what you think of, of his speech or what you know of his policies now and whether there is a discernible difference between like the Hillary Clintons of the world and other traditional liberal foreign policy views um, that might not be you know, a true leftist foreign policy dream, but something that can at least move us that direction. So something that I liked in Bernie's speech, and I've just pulled up the quote here, is he emphasizes that America should be a partner in a coalition for democracies. And he says, the goal is not for the United States to dominate the world, nor, on the other hand, is our goal to withdraw from the international community and shirk our responsibilities under the banner of America first. Our goal should be global engagement based on partnership rather than dominance. And... That kind of, to me, harkens back to uh, a very familiar character for Ryan, uh, George McGovern. Mm. Hey. <laughs> uh, good, old, good old George. Ryan reviewed a biography of George McGovern back in the day. and That's right. I think that as a bigger McGovern head than me, he could probably explain a little more how the sort of McGovern tendency shows up in that quote. But to my understanding, <laughs> it's a way in which you recognize the place that America holds in the world. Unfortunately, we are involved pretty much everywhere. And then sort of proposes a, okay, well, what now? What do we do now with this this power? How can we sort of reach out a hand instead of striking with a fist? And so I think McGovern uh, sort of had that idea when he had his, um, what is it called, Food for Peace? Yes, that's right. Yeah. With the Food for Peace. 
And I feel like that is sort of a predecessor to this idea that Sanders is espousing. Yeah, I think you could say that uh, McGovern was kind of maybe following in the footsteps of FDR to an extent, you know, with his like good neighbor policy. Always got to get a good FDR plug in there. But amen, um, amen, brother. You know, it wasn't wasn't all all. I think McGovern was probably even nicer. You know, that's that's he was a he was a minister, but he was also he was also you know a war hero. Literally, he flew um, he flew a bomber pilot a uh, 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 what is B twenty not a B seventeen a B twenty nine I think in World War Two and on multiple occasions you know landed it and it extremely difficult circumstances like half the wing blown off or something but um yeah he kind of leveraged that credibility to make arguments for stuff you know he's from a farm state obviously in south dakota and um so he would say with his food for peace thing like well we have all these agricultural subsidies and and some of them are giving us uh you know surplus um you know uh, grains or whatever, and we could use those to, uh, you know, in- instead of blowing people up, we could we could take some of those surplus grains and give them to, you know, people that might be needing them. Now, you know, that presents its own type of challenges. You don't want to drench somebody's, you know, other's agricultural market like the, remember they, when he was doing, standing up this program, they were, you know, tr- talking about giving some to Argentina, and Argentina was like, we don't need any of this. Um but they gave some of it to India, and by all accounts, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith did some studies of this, and it was actually, like, a pretty good program. It got a, got a lot of, like, discounted, you know, or free lunches to a lot of, like, school children in, in India, um, which had, you know, at this at this point was, like, importing tons and tons of food. But, you know, at any rate, even if it wasn't, like, a super successful program, at least they weren't killing anybody, you know, with the high explosive. And so that was kind of what he was, the logic he was trying to say is like trying to find kind of win-wins in some ways and just to at least avoid terrible mistakes, you know, like Vietnam, which he famously uh, was a very early critic of. And, um, yeah, that's McGovern. Any Anything more to add on him? Uh, I just have two more points about Bernie's speech. Uh, the first would be... I like that he brought up the Marshall Plan because that's actually been a failure uh, in recent years. I mean, not the Marshall Plan, but the uh, failure of American foreign policy in recent decades has been being stingy with aid, the West in general being stingy with aid. And uh, a more direct example coming from my own like area of study is uh, the failure of the West to really help when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, continually the amount that uh, entities like the IMF, World Bank, America uh, promised to Russia and other post-Soviet countries and states was frankly just not enough to help stabilize the region. And as we can see, uh, the sort of shock therapy economic reforms that took place were a failure. And so a big Marshall Plan fan, over here, uh, yeah. <laughs> Marshall Plan heads. Uh, I actually had an assignment in a course where I had to write a policy memo to 
H.W. Bush, advising him what to do with the impending collapse and collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I think it was to be set right after the Berlin Wall fell to tell him what to do to stabilize uh, the Soviet space. And at the time I said, you know, there are all these financial constraints and internal contradictions, and the thing to do is go in there with a gigantic aid package and do yeah. this. And I got a B minus. Uh, my policy was too prescriptive, but I still think... <laughs> The, the good news, and I say this as a professor, Emma, is that grades are bullshit. So uh, that's that's the good news there. Yeah, how dare a policy memo su- contain any suggestions about what you should be doing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yes, but... <laughs> um, and Speaking what was the speak, other uh, point? Oh, yes, go, the, the, the third point was that... Oh, now I forgot it. Oh, yes. Um, about climate change. Uh, yeah. That's actually a sign that Bernie is listening to foreign policy people who are telling him what he needs to say to get people to take him seriously. Because the only people in the blob who are talking about climate change and the only way they're talking about climate change is as a matter of national security. And so right, all these course, yeah. all these think tanks are like, we... we we got to learn how to deal with climate change. We got to learn how to adapt. We got to learn how to forestall. We got to learn how to prevent because the security ramifications are massive. <laughs> and so it's things <laughs> like, you know, Russia and China are going to beat us in the Arctic uh, because of all the melting ice or <laughs> God. Uh, the mass migrations that will have to take place for with climate refugees. Ah, you know, that's a security risk. And so things like that. And so that was actually a pretty smart move of Bernie to take the smart thing about climate change, which is the whole it's going to kill us all and ever it's going to kill you and everyone you've ever loved in like a matter of decades if we don't do something, but then also put a little bit of blobbiness in there about how like yes, this is my big foreign policy speech and I'm including climate change because it's it's not dying keeps us secure. So I thought that was a pretty savvy move and it it is sort of a hint that he's 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 got some folks who are listening to all these horrible horrible blob consensus that's yeah. papers. <laughs> that and Ryan that reminds me of something from um your reporting that you did when you went around and asked a bunch of actual uh politicians actual congressmen their views on economic policy <laughs> and you realized like how little they knew one, but two, how easily influenced they would be by like one guy letting them know some basic fact about economics and how it functions or something. And the, and, and the, the good news there is that uh, for someone like Bernie or, or another, you know, potentially leftist politician, it might just take reading one, um, <laughs> actually probably not the white paper itself, but one report of having a staffer read the white paper and explain it to you. Or, or a blog or having, post. 
Yeah, or a blog post, <laughs> reading fellow travelers. Do we mention fellow travelers? Because fellow travelers is a great foreign policy <laughs> blog that Bernie and his people should read. Uh, so that, that, that could be hugely influential. And this reminds me of, um, you know, you and Sprouts and a number of people who have really been promoting things like, um, whether it's UBI or various other uh, policy proposals that seem to be being actually heard and debated now by candidates that, uh, that before were just you know, having the same tropes, whether in foreign policy or other policy. To be fair, it is hard for candidates not to hear Spross about yeah. these issues. Well, they all hear him <laughs> if he speaks. Once he speaks, everyone hears him. His voice is a beautiful... Oh, Emma, this is a debate we had. Spross's voice is beautiful. You agree with that, of course. Uh, but it's also very deep. Does mm-hmm. that make it mellifluous? Because I want to call it mellifluous, but I don't know if that connotation is for a less deep voice. I think mellifluous connotes musicality. And so it can be beautiful. Is indifferent to, to register. Register. <laughs> nice. That is. I'm gonna. That's. So I'm on Team Alexi here. <laughs> do we have a gavel? Do we have a gavel for that ruling? Ryan, Coops, get put a gavel. the gavel noise post, in right here. Po- Post production okay. gavel. Dun dun dun. Like that's Coops. the ruling. Coops. Yeah. Boom. Do the gavel. Okay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Coops, I was uh, lauding your uh, reporting skills and trying to make a point about how influential bloggers like Emma could be with our our newfound uh, leftist movement. What do you say to that? Yeah, and I think you know this this. It it goes to show you that um, I mean that was the really astounding thing that uh, like a lot of these folks when I when I pressed them on you know economic questions I didn't really press them on foreign policy that much you know because I ended up focusing on economics but like they just don't have anyone telling them about this and the you know what keeps the blob consensus going is that there's it's just kind of the classic cultural hegemony situation where there's no disagreement that's ever allowed to penetrate this sort of seal of seriousness. But once, once it uh, does, and you, you know, you can, you can start thinking and, and questioning these things a little bit, you, you start wondering, it's like, why do we have this alliance with Saudi Arabia? Why are we giving Israel like $3 billion of aid a year? Is that, what, what's the point of that? And there is no point. It's just, it's just like, that's how things are done. And, you know, the, the great lie of liberal, you know, the cruise missile libs, which I think some lefties uh, perpetuate sometimes by thinking it's more logical than it really is, is that like, oh, this is, we, there's just no alternative. This is what we have to do to perpetuate, you know, capitalist hegemony. It's like, no, this is, this is a lot dumber than that. You know, like how, how much, how much money was wasted on the Iraq invasion? Something like six trillion dollars, two trillions. I would never assume cynicism over incompetence when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, this is a good point to 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 bring up uh, Ben Rhodes, who had a uh, a recent book that came out on foreign policy. So he was like basically Obama's foreign policy guru, starting at like age thirty when he w- uh, joined the White House in two thousand eight. And uh, David Cleon just wrote, I think, a pretty solid review of of Rhodes's book in the Nation. Uh, we'll link that in the post description. I'll try to make a habit of that in the future. Hey, Coops, since he has a book, does that make him a Rhodes Scholar? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I had to to get in the cheesy joke. What can I say? Yeah. But yeah, he came up with the phrase, the blob, and he was, 
notably skeptical of kind of the cruise missile liberal like consensus despite being you know in an in an i think in objectively speaking of incredibly aggressive administration in terms of foreign policy um you know they were they were they enabled the war in Yemen. They are doing drone strikes to like half the planet. There's commandos in like 150 countries. Um, in Greek, we'd say it's like miso, miso, like half and half. You know, like he's ah, we don't need to bomb Syria, but okay, let's take out Gaddafi. Let's, you know, it's like ah, here we'll have a little restraint, but over there, let's do some drone strikes and ramp up the drone war. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that. You know. I think it goes to show, you know, I, I feel like Obama, you know, he famously, I mean, the reason he was president is because he did not support the Iraq war. He would not have That's become it. president yeah. with, if he hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. And, or without Caroline Kennedy's uh, New York Times op-ed in order to signal to the other superdelegates that it was okay to switch from Hillary. <laughs> that too. I mean, there's a lot of, That's you know, there, the, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of um, enabling factors in there, but. But definitely, in, in law, we say there's, like, the proximate cause, and, and then there's the but-for cause. There's lots of but-for causes, like, but for being born, you wouldn't have been there, but for any number of things. But definitely, but for him voting against the Iraq war, he wouldn't have been there, right? Yeah. And what, you know, and like, like the, whole, the whole primary debate basically hinged around Hillary can't be trusted with the presidency because she's super hawkish, she's super aggressive, and she's going to get us in another war. And what did Obama do? He turned around and made Clinton Secretary of State. And then he, you know, he scaled back the war in Iraq, but he massively scaled up the war in Afghanistan. I thought the thing was they had to offer her Secretary of State to get her to, like, concede. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just because Obama's a, he's a giant I think he's a team of rivals Everyone had read that book, Team of Rivals, and got way too gassed up about working with their political enemies. Yeah. If she hadn't been Secretary of State... The thing to do with your political enemies is imprison them. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently that's popular. Lock her up. Lock her up. No, no, no. She could have been made ambassador to France or something. Ambassador to Benghazi. (laughs) (laughs) Is that too too soon? Well, there was no ambassador. Was there? I don't think there was. They don't think they... No, because we hadn't yet... See, that's why it's funny, right? Mm. Um... (laughs) They had to overthrow Gaddafi first. That's right. Um, yeah, and Hillary Clinton was neck deep in that decision, and it was a disaster. Well, that's the thing in the, the subtlety of my joke, in the right? stories about Ben Rhodes is they mentioned that he was sort of the usually the more idealistic, and they, in this case, idealistic means pacifistic. Um, one of the defenders of uh, Obama's decision not to engage in Syria. Which I remember everyone was like, oh, Obama's such a wuss for not doing this. And then you'd be like, well, why, why should he? Well, you know, he has to. I, Emma, let me, let me know what you think of this. I'm going to make a perhaps stupid analogy to economic policy and liberal technocrats and kind of the, the Obama liberal uh, internationalism. 
Um, it's kind of like the Republicans with the economy or in the uh, global order will just take whatever the fuck they want. They will be imperialists internationally. They will just do massive economic transfers with tax cuts from uh, the poor middle class to the rich. They'll just use the instruments of power to like just line their own pockets and do a power grab. But, um, you know, at leftists, of course, would use the powers of government in order to, I don't know, help people and actually do massive change if they could or prevent disaster. It seems to me like Obama and the kind of liberal in between is is the same type of like, oh, I'm going to be a technocrat and manage everything. And I'm going to just like tinker with the economy and like let the free market do a lot of things. But here and there, I'm going to like pull the levers internationally. I'm going to not invade Syria here, but maybe I should topple Gaddafi over here. And I mean, it seems to me there's some kind of um, hubris and, and weird technocratic uh, control that purports to think progress can come through like brainy rationalism what, what do you think of that parallel i would say there definitely is a sort of technocratic american tendency to just want to like you said pull certain levers and be like oh this is my doing and then not pull certain levers and say this is also my doing uh see this i'm i should be applauded for my restraint here and I will stand yeah. here menacingly so that you know <laughs> what could have been done. And um, so I think there's a definite tendency for when a situation comes up to be like, do we engage? Do we not engage? And it's always sort of predicated on this assumption that America must be in the room. America must be involved. When, and, frankly, there are some sorry. things that simply just do not concern us. Yeah. Right. And the other thing I would I would ask um, both of you is what you think of the idea that it's just striking me that whether it's Obama or Trump and they have different views of this, it's still uh, for both of those parties or, or both of those views about the elites of the world coming together in some way. Now, for Obama, it's like the elites of the world working together. Right. And collaborating to decide the fate of all the people in the world. Uh, and Trump, it's like, I'm going to kick the shit out of the leaders of the other worlds and do what I want, unless they're oligarchs and, and authoritarians who I kind of admire, and then I'll hook them up if they hook me up. Um, whereas a leftist would want to be like, how about we actually mobilize the people internationally that have the popular uh, will around the world to decide for themselves what's good, and, and not just have this top-down nonsense, regardless of how you do it. Hmm... Um, yeah, I think that's a good, that's, that's a fair summary, I think. And that, and that's a way that you could, you could, you know, imagine being internationalist in a, in a way that would be, you know, properly, uh, you know, pro working class in other countries to, to, you know, imagining trade deals, setting it up so that, you know, you, you, you are penalized if if your country has like really terrible safety standards or like the working day is too long or something like that you know be like you can't be too you can't be too exploitative you know you could make you know de- just sort of depend on details i guess you know you wouldn't want to be like okay well you have to have a 20 dollar minimum wage in bangladesh you know it's like they're just not wealthy enough to support that kind of uh um standard yet uh but yeah, you know, it's like that. 
the opposite of that infamous Mataglacius. I was just going to say. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I was we thinking of the exact thinking same of thing. We were all, yeah. And remember Josiah Neely jumped in, Coops? We were talking to him about this at the time. I remember he was like, he's like, but this is just the way we, this is, we, we went through the same thing like Bangladesh back when in the early uh, 20th century. We had to have child labor and, and no uh, fire protections and the you know, buildings had to burn down and kill people. That's just the way that capitalism works. It's a natural stage. Yeah, right. And I mean, you know, as a historical matter that I guess is true, kind of, I mean, maybe not to that same extent, but it's just, you know, it's like the social function of all those disasters was to mobilize the working class to the extent to that they would make them stop because there really is no point, you know. I mean, even especially when you're talking about stuff that like burns down the factory or like it collapses, like that's not business positive. (laughs) The damn thing falls down, you know. (laughs) That guy's in jail now, I believe. Um, the Glacius? That's great. <laughs> no, the factory owner. I, I don't know his name. Oh, oh sorry. Okay. But he, Just kidding. Just kidding, the Glacius. I, I don't want you in jail. Yeah. So, you know, the, there's. I think there's all manner of things you could do, you know, and you, you could, I think maybe it's particularly in American, you know, talking about our European allies, you could get over there and be like, look, this austerity is fucking you up and us too, you know, like you these Greeks can't buy our uh, our, our exports. You know what's uh, what's uh, there? N- there's not enough Big Macs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, if- Emma, I was just reading Verofakis talking about. Uh, I was I was teaching Kant, right, and I was teaching uh, kind of the categorical imperative that um, you know if, if you want something, if you think something's moral uh, to will it yourself, you have to will that it's a universal moral law that everyone wills, and 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 if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work, and you can't will it for yourself. And so he was using this analogy to trade surpluses in the EU and how, like, if you universalize that, it wouldn't work, right? Because the EU is supposed to be, like, one entity, except that, like, it's obviously something that you couldn't will for every country to have because not every country could, could like, just, like, take advantage of the other countries if they were all being the uh, the exploiter. So, um, yeah, anyway, I thought I thought of, uh, of your expertise and wanted to, to get your input on kind of um the eu and greece and i don't know but we don't have to talk about that if you don't want to i do not know much about greece (laughs) i feel like ryan is a much better candidate for talking about greece because i have heard him give the spiel on greece and austerity many times at parties and also golden dawn has quoted him in congress in athens so is it congress is not a parliament they quoted who parliament Coops, did oh, you know that? No, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wrote I wrote an article basically I felt rather queasy about this, but I wrote an article basically saying that like the only credible anti austerity forces left in Greece now that Syriza has been successfully, you know, suborned by Angela Merkel basically was the fascists. Oh my god. And like the the, the um, you know, basically, but true. the, but the true. Troika and the Eurozone set up Greece to be to be controlled by fascist party. Um, not a guarantee, of course, but like it's just exactly what happened with Syriza. Like they they uh, you know, they went from like five percent in the polls to like 30 percent because they mobilized around the austerity issue. And so I was like, you know, the fascists are the only one. And way to go, Eurocrats, you assholes. But then it's the Golden Dawn guy, I think right before he went to jail for, like, murdering someone, 
read that article. He read an excerpt of it on the Parliament. I was like, hey, when was this? This was like a couple of years, a year ago, maybe. Okay, wait. <laughs> I do remember when Trump put a quote from you in one of his ads against Clinton. Oh, God, that's right. Yeah. So now it was about been, how Cl- been... yeah, it was about how Clinton was. This, I feel like this is a perennial problem for the left. Is like you criticize the liberals and the the right goes yeah. But, no, but this makes sense though because Bernie also quote tweeted you or whatever Coops because so so yeah it balances an- out it balances out yeah that's well, the real no, horseshoe it's, it's theory the- is they both quote Coops. <laughs> you know we'll, we'll be in trouble if the liberals start quoting you because then then we'll know you're not uh, standing on principle anymore. But the anti-liberals <laughs> can all use you to critique the liberals, so that's fair. Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, in this article, at nowhere did I say that it would be good if Greece was overtaken by fascism. I, I said no. that was a bad thing. You do not have to hand it to them. <laughs> no. So our next topic will be Francis Fukuyama, the famed political theorist who studied under Straussian and Alan Bloom, uh, neoconservative Paul Wolfowitz, and wrote... Really, when I was undergrad, there were two major political theorists that seemingly had contradictory theories. One was Samuel Huntington, and the other was Francis Fukuyama, who was renowned for what was first an article and then a book called The End of History, seemingly telling us, again, this is back in the day, (laughs) pre-2001, right? So this this is back in the day when the fall of the Berlin Wall seemed to inaugurate the end of history. Liberal democracy had won, and Samuel Huntington's world, our clash of civilizations, seemed um, seems now prescient, perhaps, if flawed, uh, but at the time seemed to be losing out to Fukuyama's analysis of the state of things globally. And, and I fully expect Emma to correct me on any or all of that. But uh, by way of setting things up, um, Fukuyama now has has got a new book coming out and has been doing some interviews. And it seems uh, some of his terrible analysis is still with him, but he has learned a thing or two from history. Look at that. Uh, There's a piece in the New Statesman, newstatesman newstatesman.com, with the very kind of enticing headline for leftists says francis fukuyama interview quote socialism ought to come back end quote (laughs) which you know as most teasers do uh got a lot of excitement but didn't uh didn't complete the task that was inappropriately uh sexual i apologize for that uh just to you know speaking extemporaneously here so um fukuyama in this in this interview has some some choice quotes that seem to if not redeem him, at least show, unlike other uh, obstinate idiots, he has uh, taken in history a little bit and um, apologizes or at least least has revised his ideas. So he says, um, well, first of all, he he, he has this quote that people didn't read the whole book and and the end of his book is about potential threats to democracy. Uh, But... um, yeah, the CYA says, chapter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everyone has the, the cover your ass chapter. Uh, so in, in this New Statesman piece, I'll just read, read from it. It says, The end of history was a rebuke to Marxists who regarded communism as humanity's final ideological stage. 
How, I asked Fukuyama, did he view the resurgence of the socialist left in the UK and the US? So, so Francis, which is his middle name, by the way, because apparently uh, growing up in, in the racist United States, uh, being ethnic was not a cool thing. So he uh, had to go by Francis. What's his real anyway. first name? Uh, let's see if I can. You're the one that mispronounces everything. Why don't, why don't you re- try to read it? Uh, I, we got to keep the. Uh, I can, I'll try it. Yoshihiro. Yoshihiro Francis Fukuyama. That's pretty good. Yoshihiro. As far as I know. Yeah. Yoshihiro. Emma, Yoshihiro. Yo- Yoshihiro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, Yoshihiro uh, or Francis, as his friends call him. Frank. Um, Frank. Frank, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been watching, you know, Man in the High Castle, and I just I hear Frank, who's a white guy in, in Man in the High Castle, but of course there's a lot of Japanese, and it's uh, just really messing with me right now. Uh, so he says, "quote If you mean redistributive programs that try to redress this big imbalance in both incomes and wealth that has emerged, then yes, I think not only can it come back, it ought to come back." This extended period, which started with Reagan and Thatcher, in which a certain set of ideas, hmm, wonder what those are, about the benefits of unregulated markets took hold, in many ways it's had a disastrous effect. And he continues, quote, In social equality, it's led to a weakening of labor unions. Imagine that. Of the bargaining power of ordinary workers, the rise of an oligarchic class, almost everywhere, that then exerts undue political power. In terms of the role of finance, if there's anything we learned from the financial crisis, is that you've got to regulate the sector like hell, because they'll make everyone else pay. That whole ideology became very deeply embedded within the Eurozone. The austerity that Germany imposed on Southern Europe has been disastrous. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and finally, the last, the last quote, right, is... Quote, at this juncture, it seems to me that certain things Karl Marx said are turning out to be true. Mm. He talked about the crisis of overproduction, that workers would be impoverished and there would be insufficient demand. (laughs) Uh, And and so and he goes on and talks about China and he's scared of China because they're succeeding more than we are or they're a a real threat in their in their kind of uh, state run capitalism. But um, but those are some nice uh, quotes there showing a bit of cognitive dissonance with uh, younger Francis, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, you know, all that is, you know, fairly accurate, I guess, as far as it goes, but I think this is a good opportunity to listen to a bit of a another interview he gave on the Talking Politics podcast with David Runciman, um, in which he gave, a, I think, a very, very common but extraordinarily mistaken view of the bank bailout and how it happened. So let's just... And so no, t- yeah, listen to that. But notice, Ryan, don't you think, notice in contrast to what I read, which is seemingly spot on uh, recognition of various symptoms that were disastrous, his terrible diagnosis of what the actual um, cause of that was and, and his kind of prescription... So that's a, so that'll be a nice juxtaposition. Yeah, so let's take a listen. I mean, I think that what we've seen over the past decade is that the technocratic requirements of modern governance are really uh, increasingly incompatible with 
the expectations of democratic public. I mean, I, I think the clearest case of this was the financial crisis back in 2008, where you had a bunch of technocrats like Bernanke and Paulson who understood, for example, the necessity of bailing out these large banks, but the possibility of communicating why this was necessary to ordinary voters that were underwater because they lost their house, you know, and they couldn't pay their mortgages. It's almost impossible to do. And I think that set up the conditions for the rise of a kind of popular... I mean, Trump himself was criticizing these big banks, and and I'm not really sure how you solve that, because you have to have this kind of technocratic input. The answer is not to politicize these institutions, because that's going to lead to really bad policymaking. But on the other hand, you cannot let the technocrats run things because it just is so out of kilter with the expectations of democratic publics to actually participate to a greater and greater degree. I think this is actually kind of a hidden problem in modern democracy because the reformers that have tried to fix democracy have all pushed in a single direction, which was to more political participation. And I think that that's actually at the root of a lot of our problems right now. So, for example popular primaries and referenda were manifestations of this urge, both of which I think have had destructive effects on our politics. Part of the reason the Tea Party is so powerful is because of popular primaries, that most voters just don't care to vote in a primary, and so who votes? It's the activists, and the activists are more extreme than you know the average voter. Uh, and referenda, I don't need to tell you that you know this is sometimes not such a great idea. I think that actually the solution right now, given some of these problems that have been revealed, is to try to roll some of this back. But doing that is a loser. Basically, he's giving the the, the technocratic view that the the bank bailouts were necessary, and it, it was just like it was an unpleasant thing that had to be done because the alternative was even worse. And um, so, you know. The, you know. Look, Ryan, if only the, the rubes, the dumb people, understood the complicated ways in which we have to socialize the losses for the very wealthy and save all the terrible people who actually tanked the global economy, if only they understood our technocracy properly, they would get why that had to be done. There was no way to actually help the people. We had to do it this way. Oh, populism and democracy are terrible. Yes, yes, yes. And he goes from that to, to conclude that, you know, maybe the ability of the, um, you know, the the broad population to influence policy through things like referendums should be scaled back. And, you know, that that in itself is maybe a defensible view, because you could say that that referenda type of things like maybe don't even represent a real choice for the electorate. Um, because you have no parties to tell, you know, to sort of like digest, you know, you're making some complicated policy decision. Um, you know, it's like, should we increase taxes on, you know, imported aluminum by 0.25%? You know, it's like your average person isn't going to have any idea how to answer that question. The, you know, and this is why parties are so essential to democracy. But that's a complete distraction from the real issue here, which is the way that the bank bailout happened. And what happened with the bank bailout was, you know, you had all these loans which had been made on very seriously overvalued assets, and the assets had tanked in value, 
And so the question is, who's going to take the loss? And the government's decision under Bush and then Obama was to make homeowners take the loss. And they did it by systematically deceiving the public and by running their supposed mortgage, you know, uh, mortgage owner assistance, um, mortgage holder assistance program, the HAMP, Home Assistance Mortgage Program, to uh, help homeowners who are underwater on their mortgages to help the banks instead. But Ryan, Fukuyama, he's smart, okay? He studied under Alan Bloom, and he's telling us it had to happen this way. What, what, uh, what's he thinking? What's his deal? Look, I get what he's thinking when he can't trust the people because he is uh, fundamentally like conservative and an elitist, and he doesn't believe that the people are smart enough to rule themselves. I get that, okay? So he's a jerk, and, and, uh, and that's fine. But what's his actual argument, do you think? Because uh, yeah, I, I think he probably believes his own, you know, He's, uh, he's drinking his own Kool-Aid there. So what, what does he really believe when he says that it's so complicated that people just don't get that we had to bail out the banks and do it this way? What, what do you think his argument is in his own mind? I don't think it's an argument. I think that he has just totally internalized the Tim Geithner view of the world, um, which is that the financial sector is so big and complicated um, that, you know, you can't allow it to collapse because that would be disaster. And so what you have to do is you just have to, anything that could threaten the stability of the financial sector has to be prevented. And so that's what they've done. And that was... But why not national, Why not nationalize the banks, though? Why not wipe out all the debt on the mortgages and for the uh, actual debtors? And that would be socialism, you know. And, th- and this, I think, is where ah. you see, I think, either the double think of Fukuyama or... The, or the, I think maybe more likely the fact that he just hasn't thought out like the the, the real nitty gritty details are, are very important here when you're talking about the bank bailout. So, you know, for example, like uh, the, the bank, the, the HAMP program we were mentioning, this is part of TARP, the, the not the, the stimulus package. This is part of the, the bank bailout in 2008 that was passed under Bush. And it had basically a slush fund for to help mortgage mortgage holders to help homeowners and it's it said you could do anything you could do um you could adjust the interest rates you could adjust repayment terms and you could do principal reductions and Ooh. or any i like the, i like any <laughs> I like other the sound of that. um type of thing and uh you know other things that may be deemed necessary so there's this, there's this like huge grant of authority and what <laughs> democrats were thinking yeah. It's like, we don't want to vote for this turd of a bill to save the financial sector. Because that's, you know, remember when they tried to vote it through the first time, which is just like a one-page bill basically saying, Hank Paulson, here's $700 billion, do whatever you want. And it went down. <laughs> um, you know, Democrats insisted because they provided, you know, they they pulled the Republicans' nuts out, chestnuts out of the fire once again. They said, no, <laughs> we're going to have a slush fund for homeowners in there. Obama's going to be the next president. He's going to make good decisions, and he's going to help. Uh, he's going to help home homeowners because, you know, t- congressional Democrats naively thought that he would actually do that. But instead, he got the Bush. You know, but uh, Geithner was the head of the New York Fed when under Bush, and then Obama made him Treasury Secretary. And the first thing Geithner convinced him to do was to to renege on supporting cram down legislation, and this would allow 
in bankruptcy proceedings for homeowners to write down the value of their primary, the mortgage on their primary residence to the, to the actual value of the home, according to the market. And that's currently illegal. Um, you can't do that in bankruptcy proceedings. And, you know, so, so the idea is that, like, well, if you're way underwater, you can just declare bankruptcy and you can at least write down your mortgage to whatever the home is actually worth. You can So you can be square, you can be flat, even on your mortgage. Geithner convinced him not to do that. The second thing he did was that HAMP, even though it explicitly said in the bailout legislation you could do principal reductions, you could you could take mortgages and you could use the, the government bailout fund to to cut the value of um, primary mortgages. You know, like they had nationalized Fannie and Freddie. They had access to trillions of dollars in mortgage-backed securities and, and you know, just mortgage they, mortgages they owned through other mechanisms. Um, they didn't do that either. They had no principal reductions at all. And the reason was that to do any principal reductions or to have cram down happening in bankruptcy court would be to whack the balance sheets of the banks real bad. And it would have required even more bailout legislation. And so, or, you know, perhaps some kind of bailout or extra loans or something or the other. And so the whole logic of the situation was here are the losses. The homeowners are going to take the losses. And a lot of people got foreclosed on. But what people sometimes don't realize is that a lot of people were underwater in their mortgages, but they stayed in their homes and they kept paying on these horrible mortgages. And some of them are still paying. Some of them we paying until like 2050. And that is why nobody tried to convince the public that this the bailout needed to happen because it didn't need to happen. It was a lie. It was a fucking deception. The whole thing. And they knew that if you looked at this closely, it would be totally unjustifiable. And you couldn't do FDR fireside chats about this sort of shit where you try to convince people and they trust you. Well, things got to happen, but it's going to turn out good. You know, we're going to help the little guy and the big guy at the same time. I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. No, it was just like, fuck you, homeowners. We're helping Lloyd Blankfein and, and, you know... Uh, Jamie Dimon and all those people. Now, separately, it was good that they helped GM and kind of the auto industry and, and, and whatnot. And that actually turned out to, I think, profit the government in, in, in large ways. But for some reason, they don't view the individual households and human beings in the same way, that we should help them out in their time of need um, so that they might better thrive like afterwards, right? Nah, fuck them. Let them just uh, go underwater figuratively and and um, and let's focus on on the, the big power centers and, and make sure that, that no harm comes to those centers. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a running theme on this podcast, but uh, so many, and, and I think it's ingrained, like you said, whether it's Fukuyama or anyone else, that uh, so many things that seem to be phrased as well, that's just what the uh, complicated situation demanded. Empirically, that's what technocracy demands. And instead, it's this bullshit, ide- purely ideological power move in favor of a certain class. And I think that they've actually, to a large extent, brainwashed themselves and rationalized it to think that they're the good guys doing the best they can, right? Maybe that that ties into the Ben Rhodes memoir again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have the people who are just straight-up dishonest, and I think that's Tim Geithner. You know, Tim Geithner is a snake. Oh, well, look what he's doing now. Look at that bastard. Yeah, t- Tim Geithner, he's, he's, he's working at a hedge fund now. One of the business models is, is literally tricking um, – 
poor people into taking like super high interest loans. Like you just mail people a check and it's like, oh, you can just deposit this check. And then there's like 10,000 pages of fine print, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, if you cast a check, uh, you're, you know, you're going to be charged like 80% interest on this, you know, and if you don't pay, then we're going to take you to collections. Emma, if you were in charge of administering punishments to Tim Geithner, and it wasn't necessarily within our legal system, let's say you were in Saudi Arabia or, or whatever you want, you could you could do any form of punishment. What do you think Tim Geithner would merit? What, what would you do to him? Uh, turn him over to Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I I would uh, I would have Ryan. I would have, have like Ryan a, re-educate a, him. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He has to be on our podcast for the next seven consecutive episodes. We'll there you we'll, go. That'll teach we'll him. We'll strap him into the chair from A Clockwork Orange and just made him make him read. And by the end of the session, he's gonna start saying Colorado things. <laughs> like he's gonna be like, "Oh, be dipped in shit. Camp was a bad idea." I don't think he's uh, used that that Cooperism yet on the show. We're a show now. You see what I did there? Yeah, that's uh, that's. A I'm good saving them up. That's true. You can't, as Machiavelli says, you know, you do all your evil at once, but you got to spread the good out over time. Yeah. Emma, thoughts on Fukuyama's terribleness? I gotta say, I love the headline about socialism. Uh, what was the headline again that they were all using? Needs to come back. Like, yeah, socialism needs to come back. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like the subhead should be like, it never left, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Been here all along. No, but like the terribleness of his opinion, right, is in part this notion that despite learning. So here's the thing. Tell, tell me how this works. Okay. You're a top political theorist. You think the end of history has has happened. You see all this evidence in the next, whatever, a couple decades about how you were wrong. And then you conclude, you know what? Uh, we can't trust the people. The elites are... The problem is the elites haven't decided things enough. And, and if only the elites could explain to these idiots a few more things, then then everything will be okay. Like, how do you have the cognitive dissonance to, to have the gall to say that, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Well, to be honest, I would have changed my name and faked my own death or something i can't imagine getting on like that i'm not francis i'm yoshihiro i don't know who you're talking about yeah like just you know (laughs) drop drop the name go go pull alexander super tramp and just oh into the wild yeah i caught that no i caught that reference that's a good one yeah, I don't, well, I think this this tends to demonstrate that that, that you, you should title things better. Mm, yes. Don't don't say the end of history. Mm. Say like maybe the end of history. Or yeah, no, it could have been <laughs> the end of his the end of history. Yeah, like with yeah, a question yeah, mark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like the last man. The pa- yeah the a pa- pause in history. A, 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 uh, the bathroom break of history. The last few men. <laughs> Fourth to the last man. <laughs> You gotta hedge your bets. Yeah, but I I think I will say, you know, despite that, how badly he botched this particular take, I think Fukuyama is more he's more interesting and he's more honest than your average like liberal technocratic apologist. You know, he does seem to grasp a lot of the problems here. I agree. He seems to no longer be neoconservative or neoliberal in any way, 
And like our Chait episode, our, our most recent Chait episode, I would suggest that this weird mix of kind of redeeming quotations about bringing Marx back and may- maybe socialism socialism needs to come back and admitting that neoliberalism was terrible under Reagan and Thatcher. Um, and the fact that he still has some terrible opinions, maybe this is just what progress looks like, whether it's Chater Fukuyama, maybe the, this is what, um, what it looks like when somebody completely, you know, uh, in bed with the disastrous policies that led to where we are today, can't like do anything except admit in the face of such evidence that that wasn't right at all. <laughs> yeah. And and maybe this is just what it looks like when they try to figure out what to do next from there. I think so. And I think it, you know, I think as we were talking before about foreign policy and Bernie Sanders, you know, it, it really tends to demonstrate how, how much of the liberal like consensus is a kind of em- the emperor has no clothes type of situation where all you need to do is point out some like fairly obvious stuff and in a sufficiently loud, you know, or like a big enough platform. And it's like undeniable, you know, you know, they like they, you know, one of the big uh, uh, rationalizations for neoliberalism and austerity and so forth is that you're going to tank growth. Oh, the growth's going to be bad. You know, that was one of the things that the Bush people were saying in 2008. We got to do this bailout or we're going to have a lost decade like Japan. Well, we've already had a lost decade. Growth has been yep. actually in the toilet since 2008. And here we are, you know, and it's like people are still sort of saying that. But like kind of the emphasis is sort of like slowly fading over time. And I think it's because it's like it's just not it's bullshit. It's total bullshit. And in fact, I have hope because here's one more quote from Fukuyama from uh Yoshihito, is that what it was? I don't know. Uh, this is something that's Yoshihiro. That's right. Ah, I'm terrible. This is this is a quote that gives me hope because it's not. Look, with Chait, it was tactical. He didn't uh, at that point or at this point in time um, leave behind his actual kind of ideological commitment to proceduralism as an end in itself, right? But uh, but look at this quote from from Fukuyama, right? He says, "quote." What I said back then, 1992, is that one of the problems of modern democracy is that it provides peace and prosperity, but people want more than that. Liberal democracies don't even try to define what a good life is. It's left up to individuals who feel alienated without purpose, and that's why joining these identity groups gives them some sense of community. End quote. So so he at least has identified the soulless, empty, atomistic nature of liberal uh, democracy and of, of economic liberalism, right? And hopefully that leads him to realize that, say, I don't know, something like socialism might provide more than just a hey, individual choice as an end in itself, right? Um, I don't know. It just seems to be over time with, with the disasters that capitalism has created, uh, even people like Fukuyama and Chait will eventually see the light and see that there's a good beyond merely choosing what the market allows you to choose, you know? One can hope. Last thoughts, Emma? Well, thanks for coming on. Or, yeah, thank you. Oh, well, let's get one more plug in there. for. Yeah, <laughs> 
Um, anything? Plug, plug, plug the blog. Anything coming yeah. up on fellow travelers? Um, yeah, what you guys up to? We've got some neat things in the works. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have funding for like sort of white paper type things, but we've had a real uh, plethora of interest coming from people who aren't able to publish their sort of um, well left wing foreign policy anywhere, and so we're I feel pretty confident in how we're able to provide a space for that. Yeah. Well, and hopefully you will have that huge money soon. Amen. <laughs> Who funds fellow travelers? <laughs> yeah. They're getting that $10 somewhere. It's definitely not the Saudis. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Even an amount that small would, would not, it would confuse them and be like, wait, I didn't realize. It's like that Arrested Development. How much does a banana cost? Yeah, $10? how much does fellow travelers cost? $10? <laughs> Uh, thanks a lot, Emma, and and uh, and thanks to all the listeners. Yeah, 